Southbridge. Glad you made it here safely today. Those of you who were out of town during the week, we had a little bit of snow. It's kind of a crazy week. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, we kind of knew it was coming. And uh, I have actually, I'm from the north, for those of you who didn't know that, um, explains the rate of speed and speaking and all those types of things. But uh, one of the things it does is uh, I'm a, a southerner by choice. Some of you were just born here. And uh, I got here as fast as I could. But what my, some of my southern friends do when this type of weather comes around is we start uh, razzing each other a little bit. And I had one friend who sent me a picture uh, like this as an e-card. Some of you may have seen this type of thing before. But uh, he was just begging for his one day. Wanted to be able to enjoy the snow for a day, and uh, Brad, thank you so much for that. <clears throat> um, but I'll just say, as a northerner, that was a legitimate storm. And for those of you who weren't out in it, you perhaps saw pictures on Facebook. Maybe you saw this picture that was there. It's a popular one. We, stories tend to get a little bit bigger as we tell them. And uh, some of you have your own story now. I took a picture, put it on my own Facebook page, and it's the uh, next picture that we have here. I was stuck in the grind. I stayed at the office a little bit too long. Got stuck in the grind. Took a picture. Yes, that guy is voluntarily outside of his vehicle. Those other people, I don't know what they're doing down there. And uh, was watching. And what I put on my Facebook was something along the lines of, what's your story? The first person who responded goes to our church. You can go to my Facebook. Give him a hard time later. His name's Chris Lindsay. And uh, he wrote to me. He said, I left my office at noon so that I wouldn't have a picture like that on my Facebook page, Scott. To which, Chris, you are smarter than me and wiser than me. So thank you very much. Uh, but other people shared their story, and everybody has a story how they dealt with the storm. In fact, I called our worship pastor, Jed. Jed would tell me a couple years before we moved here, we moved here in 2006, that there was an ice storm in Raleigh that was so bad, people were deserting their cars on the road, going to hotels, walking home, doing all that stuff. I called him, I said, I have my own story. You don't have to tell me that story anymore. We're out here. And different people shared their stories with me. And had one friend whose commute is normally 25 minutes, said it took him eight hours that was the longest one that I heard of. Had another friend who walked a mile to his house from his car. Uh, another friend who walked three and a half miles, handing out Pop-Tarts along the way, <laughs> sharing the love of Jesus through a breakfast treat. And so that was wonderful. And different people pulling people out of ditches and using the opportunity to share Jesus with different folks. Had one friend, one of my favorite stories, was that he deserted his car. He left it. He figured he'd come back after the snow melted. And he was cutting through a neighborhood, got attacked by a dog, was bit by a dog. And he emailed me this story. And I wrote back and said, those chihuahuas are fierce, <laughs> all the compassion I could muster up. And he wrote, dude, it's a, it was a big dog. And I said, bet you gets bigger every time you think about it. Just kind of, it's like a fishing story, right? It just keeps getting bigger. And so that's what we do. But we all have a story of how we dealt with the storm. I don't know what yours was. I hope that you ended up um, Wednesday at some point in time getting to a home that had heat and power and all those things. I know some of you lost power. Hopefully no one was hurt. And if so, um, we're very sorry for that. That was a real car, apparently, that was on fire on Glenwood. I don't know the details of that story, but if that's you, um, I'm sorry. Some of you might be here today because someone was kind to you and you were like, I want to know what they believe or what church they go to. And so we welcome you and we're glad you're here. But we each have a story about the storm. And what will probably happen today is that some of you will be out in the lobby and you'll tell where you were at, what happened, what your story was, how you dealt with the storm. And this is an easy one to talk about because it's a shared experience for all of us. But there are other storms in the Christian life that are sometimes more difficult to talk about. Try the storms of discouragement, storms of despair. Storms of difficulty, even storms of depression for some. But let me tell you something. Those are things that we all share in common too. We don't like to talk about that as much in Christianity. And while we're not a health and wealth, prosperity gospel church, most of us, just because we're Americans and because of Christian marketing and because of American marketing, our highest virtues are health and wealth and happiness. 
And sometimes what can happen with that is there's an underlying thought process that if we're not always happy, somehow we're doing something wrong in the Christian life. We don't have enough faith. We don't believe the right things. We're not applying the answers. And so we don't want to talk about that kind of storm of discouragement, of despair, of uh, defeat, of depression, whatever word you want to use for it. It's those difficulties. Let me tell you something. If you've been discouraged or are discouraged right now, experienced depression, have been in that moment, you have some incredible company through the scripture. I want to share a few with you as we get started this morning. Moses, you've probably heard of him if you've read the Bible. He's at the very beginning. He's a key leader. Um, he says this to God in Numbers chapter 11, verse 11. He asked the Lord, why have you brought, us, brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you burdened me with these people? Remember last week we talked about his vision was born with a burden. But the burden was heavy, and it was too much for him. In verse 15, he talks about it in verses 12, 13, 14. But in verse 15, he says, If this is how you're going to treat me, talking to God, put me to death right now. That sounds pretty discouraged. You get a successor, Joshua. Joshua loses a battle at Ai because of sin, but not his own sin. He says this to the Lord. Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Did you deliver us to destroy us? What's going on in my life, God? Does it make sense? Why are we here? You've got David, a guy who's called a man after God's own heart throughout the scripture, knows incredible highs, and you read some of the Psalms. But you know, if you read the Psalms, you'll find people in some incredible lows as well. David says this in Psalm 31, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish. That sounds pretty down. And my ears by groaning, my strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. We talk about Job and all the stuff that happened with him with the loss of wealth and the loss of children, but we don't talk about oftentimes the emotional stress he had. Chapter 3 and verse 1, he curses the day of his birth. You look at the prophet Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. He writes an entire book called Lamentations, Book of Mourning. It was one of the most famous, perhaps the most famous of all the prophets. Elijah preached about probably more than any of the other prophets. Has an incredible victory that we love to talk about in 1 Kings chapter 18 over the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings uh, Kings chapter 19, he says, God, take my life. This is after success. Lots of stuff can get us down. And so I don't know if you're discouraged today. If you're not, it will come. I'm so sorry. But today we're going to talk about discouragement and dealing with discouragement. We're going to talk about how God encourages those that are discouraged. And so hopefully today, if you're not already discouraged, that when it comes, this message will be a resource for you that you can go back to, and you can see how God encourages those that are discouraged. And we're going to look at it in Acts chapter 18. If you have a copy of the scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. Acts chapter 18, we were in chapter 17 last week, as Paul was in Athens preaching about the unknown God. And he got a response. Some people trusted Christ. Other people kind of were, they shrugged their shoulders. They were apathetic, much like an American audience. They would say, well, that's good for you. If that's what you believe, Paul, we're going to talk more about it. That's fine. Others mocked him. And Paul's going into Corinth, the next town now. Now, Corinth is unlike Athens. Athens was a religious center. Athens was a cultural center. Corinth is more of a commercial center. In fact, one commentator I read called it an economic boomtown. Uh, they'd have about 20 times the population of Athens, about 200,000 people that were there. Most of them are transient. They would only be there for a period of time because it was a trade town. It had harbors on both the east and the west. But it was known for more than just being a commercial town. If you talk to someone in the first century about Corinth, you might as well have said Las Vegas. It was Sin City. Uh, The verb to Corinthianize meant to be involved in sexual immorality. It was the home of uh, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which had a thousand temple prostitutes. That's how they celebrated. That's how they worshipped there. 
And here Paul comes into this town. Think about his background. He was called by God into Europe, Macedonia. He knew that God wanted him there. But everywhere he goes, he gets kicked out. The least violent response is what just happened in Athens. They were just apathetic. They didn't want to hear about the life-changing news that he had to share with them. But he's been beaten. He's been flogged. He's been imprisoned. He's been brought before trial. He's been run out of town. And then he had his shoulders shrugged at him. And then he comes into this town where he's standing in the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite, looking at more people than he's ever gone into a city for before. And all they're interested in is materialism and sin. He's already discouraged. But look at what God does. Verses 1 through, we'll read verses 1 through 10. Maybe we'll get to 11 today. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And here's why. Because, Cla- because Claudius, the emperor at the time, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, that was his trade, how he made money to support his ministry. As they were, he stayed and worked with them. So they went into business together. In verse 4, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade the Jews and Greeks. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy, some more friends come, came to Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And so that's what he continually is doing. But here's the response. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. So some people did get saved. Many of the Corinthians who heard believed, and they were baptized. So a bunch of the Jews and Gentiles were saved. But then Paul's so discouraged, the Lord comes to him. He says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And here's why. For I am with you. And no one's going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. And so here we see Paul in this time of great discouragement. And there are a lot of things that can get us discouraged, aren't there? And if I listed off, I could do the, the rest of the time that I have to preach to you. I could just talk about things that can get us discouraged. A lot of them have to do with relationships. Sometimes it's a relationship in a marriage. Sometimes it's with a brother, or sister, sibling, you know, a cousin, a friend, a coworker. It can be with your parents. It can be with your kids. A lot of times the things that happen in those relationships are the very things that, that send us in a spiral of discouragement. It can be circumstances. It can be medical circumstances. It can be financial circumstances. It can be tension at work circumstances, not knowing if you're going to lose your job circumstances, things not being where you'd want them to be at this stage of life type circumstances, things that happen just in the home. There's all kinds of stuff that can happen. And here we know Paul's discouraged, not just because we can infer it from the details I've already told you about. His call to Macedonia is where God wants them to be. Things aren't going well. But he tells us himself. He starts a church here in Corinth and then later writes them some letters, four or five probably. We have two of them in the Bible. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about when he came to them. He didn't try to speak to them like he did to the philosophers in Athens. He comes with the simplicity of the gospel. I just wanted to preach Christ and Christ crucified. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness and fear. Paul was afraid. And with much trembling. And remember, he's just left the Thessalonians. And 1 Thessalonians, won't read it because there's a lot of verses, but you can read it on your own. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and 3, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, he talks about all the anxiety that he had because he had left these people during a time of persecution. And he didn't know what was going to happen to them as brand new believers that were under persecution themselves. One commentator I read said this about Paul's situation. His name's Longnecker, if you want to look him up. But he said, uh, he must have traveled to Athens. Paul must have traveled to Athens, or from Athens to Corinth, in a dejected mood wondering what worse could happen and why God had allowed matters to fail so badly. 
Also, he was almost sick with anxiety over the state of the Thessalonian converts, whom he had been forced to leave with the threat of persecution hanging over them. Consequently, anxiety continued to weigh on him and drive him into depression. Paul was only human, and he may have been ill during much of this period from the effects of the beatings at Philippi, and this would have contributed further to his emotional depression. So here's Paul. This is his situation. We know in another place, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, when he went to Asia, he despaired of life itself. And here he is again in Europe at this time, discouraged. And what we see through verses 1 through 10 are three different ways that God encourages those that are discouraged. He does it through providing people. He does it through promising his presence. He does it through pushing us to perseverance. Let's talk about that first one, providing people. I think most of us know that Satan's one of his primary tools is to get us into isolation. And if not, you at least know it through experience. That when God gets you, in, or when Satan gets you into isolation, then you might read the scriptures, you might pray, you might do things on your own, but in our minds, things can happen. We start to believe lies. We can justify sin that when we're talking to other people, we can't justify quite the same way. And so one of God's primary tools in the Christian life is to provide other people. He even says that you should encourage one another every day as long as it's called today. Why? So you wouldn't be hardened to sin's deceitfulness. It's Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. It says, but encourage one another daily as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. There's something that happens in isolation. The scriptures continually tell us to live the one another's together. One of them being if you see someone who's in sin as a believer, you go to them, you try to restore them, not just because of what's going on in their life, but because of the shrapnel that it can cause in all the lives of many believers. And so we're not to live this life alone. And so when you're discouraged, one of the worst things you can do is get into isolation. What God provides is people. Here Paul is, he comes into Corinth alone. His friends are still back. He probably sent one of them uh, back into Macedonia. He probably sent one of them to the Thessalonian believers and, and sent another one to some of the other believers. And so here he is traveling all by himself. And some of you that travel, you know the temptations can be difficult in travel time. And he stands on the edge of this city. And the shadow of the temple of Aphrodite would sit about 1,900 feet above the city. And he looks at these people that just love materialism and primarily sexual sin. And he wants to present the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And what is the first thing that God does in this time of discouragement in Paul's life? Look at verse 2. He provides people. He brings these people he hasn't met up to this point. Aquila and Priscilla. That's their names. We get them. But not only do we get their names in verse 2, we get something about them. Notice this. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla. And so we know that God provided people, but notice who these people are. Why are they there in Corinth? Because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And what had happened was that Claudius, back in 41 AD, tried to verbally get people out of Rome, didn't work. Kind of like some of you may have seen, what happened with the New York governor recently. You're not welcome here. Didn't work. In 49... He made an edict. You had to leave if you were a Jew. The reason why, and this is from a Roman historian, not necessarily a Christian historian, a Roman historian tells us the reason why is because there were arguments among the Jews that many people interpret were arguments about who is the Christ, who's the Messiah. So Priscilla and Aquila are probably already believers, and they're believers that have had a similar experience to Paul. So if God's going to send someone to encourage him, he sends some people who also know what it is to be discouraged. So he brings these people that have been kicked out of Rome because of their faith. And so not only does he provide people, but he provides people that are people of the truth. See, the people alone are not what gets us out of the funk. It's not what gets us out of the depression, out of the discouragement. It's not just having people around you, but you've got to have people of the truth. It's the truth that sets you free. You have to have gospel-centered people. You have to have people that are going to point you to the gospel. The gospel is the medication. The people are just the means. The people are the ones that are point you to the truth. 
And God provides those kinds of people in Aquila and Priscilla. And they go into business together. Verse 3 tells us they're both tent makers. And Paul's still trying to preach at the synagogue. But then verse 5, God brings some more people. When Silas and Timothy came, so not only does God provide people who have been through something like what Paul's been through, he provides people who went through it with Paul, with Timothy and Silas. These are the guys that went with him to Europe. And so they've been to these towns. Have the exact same experiences? No. Because everybody experiences different events differently. But they were there when it happened. And so Paul, being the primary leader, probably felt more of it. He probably could wallow in his own self-pity and say, well, you, just, you don't get it. You don't know what it's like to be me. But God provided these people to walk with him through the circumstances. Timothy and Silas, apparently they brought a financial gift because now Paul didn't have to do tent making. He devoted himself specifically just to preaching. Well, what God provided here was people. And what we see is that's what happens throughout, all throughout Scripture. God doesn't want us to live this Christian life isolated, and so he's continually providing people. Think about the early church. 3,000 Jews come to Christ in one day. They get baptized. It's exciting. We kind of do rah, 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 models for ministry, out all that stuff. But what happens? They start meeting together in small groups. Why is that? Is it because the church had an intricate small group system that was so good it facilitated everybody into it? They had been a church for about five minutes, if you think about that. No, it's because these people realized they needed each other. See, sometimes we get deceived and think we don't need each other. They depended on one another. And what did they do when they gathered together? If you read Acts chapter 2, what they did is they didn't just sing Kumbaya, talk about their stock portfolios or their sports teams. What they did is they surrounded themselves around the gospel, the apostles' teachings that were explaining the story of Jesus Christ and what it all meant to all of us. Those people that pointed them to the truth. Acts chapter 4, what you see is that they experienced persecution for the first time. Two of the leaders, Peter and John, before it was Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, it was Peter and John. Peter and John go before the, the leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, the court there, and they're commanded, don't ever speak in the name of Jesus. If you do, we will flog you. They're put in prison, and they get released from prison. Do you know the first place they go? Is their small group of people that are meeting in a home, and they're praying, and they pray together with those people. It talks about what those relationships were like at the end of Acts chapter 4. It says this in verses 32 and 33. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the gospel, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. It's because we need each other. And they were working together as the body of Christ. Not getting in isolation where sin begins to harden us, but God was providing people in those moments when he could easily be discouraged. That's why we're commanded what we're commanded in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, it says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. The opposite of discouragement. For he who promised is faithful. We're supposed to meet together, continue to meet together. Verse 24 says this, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Living this stuff out. Verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, the day of judgment approaching, we're to be together. So what God provides is God provides people. So who are your people? For Paul, he had Priscilla and Aquila that later he talks about in Romans, in Romans chapter 16, that he's thankful for these people because they're willing to risk their lives for him. These weren't just friends. These weren't just buddies. These were gospel-centered relationships of people that will point you to the truth. And so who do you have like that? I've shared with many of you uh, before I've shared their church as a whole, at least at different times, different parts of the struggle that I've had with anxiety since planning this church. We planted South Bridge in 2007. 
around 2010, um, our executive pastor, we got an executive pastor, John Cullen. He took a bunch of administrative details off my plate, and uh, I had a decision to make whether to get busy with other stuff or to deal with some internal things. And I was sort of dealing with what was going on in my heart. I didn't like it. It wasn't fun. And I would start to struggle with anxiety, and I'd have these, basically, I don't know, not this anxiety attacks like a heart chest thing, but my mind would just start racing and thinking all kinds of ridiculous things. And some of my worst moments were in prayer, and I remember one day, um, having a terrible day, I came home, I told Shanna about it, and I had been sharing some of these details with Shanna, and she said, you, you need to call one of the elders. And I'll tell you this about our elders. We have um, elders, we're an elder-led church, uh, for those of you that are new to Southbridge. There are a lot of churches that elders are just figureheads. We, our elders really love Jesus, they love our church, they love this city, um, they love the word. And uh, one of their jobs is to keep me accountable and uh, to help me do my job. And I called one of the elders that night, his name's Alan Folkrod, some of you know him. Um, Alan... It's a guy, the reason why I called him is because I trust him, and I've seen him help people in emergency moments before, and I've seen him take cast-offs into his house, and you'll ask some of the people that he's taken into his home, um, that's what they describe themselves as. I felt like a cast-off. I felt like it was an emergency moment. We called them. They came to our house that night. He and Barb sat at our kitchen table, his wife, and uh, we talked. Shanna shared everything that was going on. I shared everything that was going on, and uh, he got in my face, and he said, we're going to start meeting every week. We sat down. We started to meet. Um, we didn't do like accountability, like, hey, did you pray today? No, he was, it was real. And we started to talk through things. And eventually he told me, he said, you need to go to a counselor, Scott. And I thought, that's for like people with real problems. I'm going to go to a counselor. And God humbled me. And I started meeting with a counselor twice a week for about 18 months. After each one of those meetings, I would call Alan and I'd tell him, here's what we were talking about and here's where I'm at and this was helpful and here's what I'm still struggling with. And I'd call Alan whenever I'd have an anxiety um, situation. I'd call him up. Sometimes that was three or four times a day. He'd answer the phone every time. And he walked me through that stuff. He'd pull me aside after preaching sometimes, check with me, see if I should keep doing this job. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, I believe it wasn't for the way that God used Alan. Now, it wasn't him. It was him pointing me to the truth and pointing me to the gospel through the thing. Um, I don't think I'd be here. I don't know that I'd be in ministry if it wasn't for that friendship. God uses people. Do you have people? Who are your people? Paul has these folks that he says, we don't know the story. But Aquila and Priscilla apparently were willing to lay their lives down for Paul. And he's got Timothy and Silas as partners in ministry. And he said, well, I don't have elders. Well, who are your people? Who do you have? That's one of the reasons why we have groups at our church. E-groups in general, but specifically our embrace groups. We talk about trying to live out the one another of Scripture. It's one of them is encourage one another. We pray for one another. We carry each other's burdens. It's one of the things that we do in these groups. Who are your people? You might go, I have friends. Well, do you have people like this, though, that we're talking about? They're going to point you to the truth. They're going to be there when you need them. And a lot of times we talk about not wanting to do that. I've had people before that have uh, led groups that have said to me afterwards, I, just, I was just in group because the church asked me to. <laughs> we don't make groups for our sake, just so you know. <laughs> and the groups are for your sake, so that you'll be there for someone else, so that someone else will be there for you, because this stuff just happens in life. It's the way that life works. It's a false picture of the Christian life that everything just goes smooth all the time. And they're always happy, happy, happy. Discouragement's reality. And I'll be honest with you about groups. Sometimes I don't want to go. I, I wanted to skip this week. Sorry if I offend you if you're in my group. Um, I couldn't skip because they meet at my house. <laughs> so they show up. You know, what am I gonna, I'm going to be in my room. You guys just lock up on your way out. You know, I can't, it doesn't work. After they left, you know what I said, what Shannon and I said to each other? There was a guy in our group who shared some of his struggles and some of his victories and defeats in life and Afterwards, my wife looked at me and just said, I feel so full. And I felt the same way. 
So glad they came. Life-giving relationships. There's a lot of life-sucking relationships out there. It's a place where you can get some life-giving relationships. People need you. You need them. And you walk together through this. It's our small group system. We call it e-groups. We invite you, if you're not in one, to be in one. If you're in one, you don't have that. Change groups. So that's, that's what it's supposed to be. And Paul had that. But you know what? Just having people sometimes isn't enough. Sometimes even with that, you get discouraged. And what we see is what happened with Paul. He had people. He even had a financial gift given to him. That's a big encouragement, most people would say. But he still gets upset. He devotes himself to preaching in verse 6. And he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But then verse 6 says, but. Well, so verse 5, he devoted himself to preaching. Verse 6, but. That's a contrastive word. Things are about to change. He's doing a good thing, but this is what's going to happen. The Jews opposed him. When? Not if. When the Jews opposed him, it became abusive. It probably means verbal abuse. They're slandering him. Now, if you're Paul, what are you thinking? I already have Jesus. Like, I'm not here for my sake, is what he's thinking. I'm telling you news that will transform your eternity. I'm doing this for your sake, and you're going to slam me? You're bashing me? Now, these are people that he says in Romans chapter 9, I'd give my own salvation that the Jews would come to Christ. He loves them. But look at what he says next says that what Paul happened after they, after they became abusive is he shook out his clothes as a Jewish expression, nonverbal expression, like I'm done with you, in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. In other words, I have fulfilled my responsibility. Now it's on you. It's like my friend Chris. WRAL told all of us. I left work at noon. It's your fault, Scott. You're sitting out on the road at 1 o'clock. That's you decided. And Paul's saying, listen, Jews... You want to stand before God on Judgment Day without Jesus Christ? You have to make that decision. It won't be because I didn't tell you. He's saying, I've told you the good news. If this is how you want to respond, I'm done with you. I'm moving on. There's other people that need to hear. He's discouraged. He loves these people. He's not doing it because he's mad at them. He's frustrated with the situation. He's discouraged that their hearts aren't changing. And even though he has people, he needs more. So then God himself visits Paul. These are red letters in my Bible. What happens is a guy gets saved in his family in verses 7 and 8. But then verse 9, the Lord himself visits Paul. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And he gives him three commands. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. And then he gives him some promises. For I am with you. And no one's going to attack and harm you. And the reason, because I have many people in this city. What God gives Paul here is he gives him a promise of his presence. He says, I'm with you. So not only does he provide people, but he promises his presence. And what God promises us in those moments of discouragement, he promises he'll be with us. Now let me just be clear as far as studying the Bible. I know you'll read the Bible on your own throughout the week. Uh, There are two promises here. And I don't want to just skip over one and ignore that that's true. You can't just do that. You don't just get to pick parts of Scripture that you want to take and the ones you don't want to take. But one of these promises applies to us, God's presence. One of them doesn't apply to us. He's promised also that he will not be harmed. But that's a specific promise in this specific city. And so it's just for Paul. And it's not only just for Paul, it's just for Paul in this moment. Because we already know that Paul's been beaten, he's been flogged, he was stoned and left for dead one time. So he will be harmed at some places. Eventually, Paul will be martyred for his faith, but not here in Corinth. Here in Corinth, he's given the promise, you will not be harmed. But it's a specific promise just for Paul. But then there's also another promise that we see given all throughout Scripture. It's God's presence. In fact, those guys I read to you earlier about the guys that experienced depression, experienced discouragement, that felt defeated, almost every one of those guys, God promises them his presence. In fact, he does it when he's commissioning them. 
Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is saying, how in the world am I? Who am I to lead your people? He says, who am I that I should go before Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. I'm there. It's not about you, Moses. It's not about what you can do. I'm with you. His successor, Joshua. Joshua's being commissioned. Joshua chapter 1. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, command. It's pretty clear. Why wouldn't I be discouraged? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, when he's being commissioned, he's talking about all of his insecurities, all of his inabilities, all of his fears, and God says this to him. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And I'll rescue you, declares the Lord. I am with you. And see, God's everywhere all the time. He's omnipresent, is what theologians call that. But there's something about when you're in that dark place of sensing and realizing God's presence. Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. There's something about being in the shadow, the valley of death, that we then realize his presence. And here's Paul. He's in this town, Sin City, Corinth, of the first century. He's being verbally abused. He's being opposed. The pattern's starting to reoccur. I come in, somebody gets saved, and then there's opposition. And things go badly. And they usually go badly for me, if, he's, if you're Paul. And then God comes in and he promises, I'm with you. Keep going. If anybody needs to be told to keep going, this is the guy who was stoned, left for dead, gets up and goes and preaches the next day in the next city. And Paul tells him, you keep going? Or God tells him, keep going? Don't be silent. So you're saying that Paul, if anybody's going to run his mouth about Jesus, it's Paul. You're saying that Paul was tempted to not be talking about Jesus? Maybe he just thought, I'll just keep the peace. And just this, I talk about you all the time. Just this time, it's not worth it. I don't want to. I'm done with these people. He says, no, you keep going with these people. And keep talking. Don't be afraid. Paul was afraid. You don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm there. And there's something about God's presence in those dark moments. It just means more. And all those passages I read you, those are commissioning passages. You know we have a commissioning passage? It's Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. We're commissioned to go and take the message, to be his witnesses, to make disciples. Do you know how it ends? Verse 20. It says, and surely I am with you. God promises us his presence. And there will be difficult times in all of that. And he will be there. And he will meet us in those moments. I told you different people had stories of different things that took place in the storm. Probably my favorite of all the stories that I had shared with me that I, or that I read on Facebook was uh, one young lady that I know that uh, grew up actually in Michigan with me. So she's a fellow northerner. And maybe she had a little bravado about that. I don't know. But she was going to get a, go to a, a hair appointment. And she had a 12 o'clock hair appointment. And she thought, I'll get in before the snow comes, and, and I'll get out of there. Besides, the salon that she goes to apparently has child care. I'll tell you who she is, ladies, if you want to talk to her about that later. Uh, but she decided she was going to go. So she goes to her 12 o'clock appointment. She says she gets out right at 1 o'clock when the snow hit the ground, and that's when the rest of Raleigh decided to hit the roads you know, at the exact same time. And uh, she said she was normally about a 20-minute commute to get home. She pulled out of the parking lot of the salon, and everywhere she turned, there was an accident. And so she just thought, well, I'll have to be patient. 20-minute drive will probably take about an hour. And it starts to become more and more difficult. Everywhere she's going, she's seeing accidents every turn she goes around. So she calls her husband, and he guides her to get to 540. For those of you who drove on 540, I heard that you could drive. You could, you could move like 15, 20 miles an hour. You weren't going fast, but you could move. 
And she felt good about things at that moment. And so she thought, you know, a little delay, but that's fine. And she gets to the exit she's going to get off of. And she says there's about 500 cars. They're all trying to get off at this exit. And so she gets in line. And then she sits there. After two hours of sitting in this line, she's moved a couple hundred feet. And so she looks at her phone, which is about to die. And she doesn't have her charger with her. She looks at her gas gauge. She's running out of gas. Got little kids in the back seat. And she starts to go into mommy mode. And starts to visualize herself stranded on the side of the road with two little children in this snowstorm. And so in a panic, she texts messages with her husband. And then she starts to cry. And she doesn't know what she's going to do. And the kids start to notice she's crying. So she fakes like everything's okay. And she makes up songs. She starts singing songs with the kids. She doesn't want them crying and freaking out too. That's not going to, this makes everything more stressful if you've ever been with crying kids. And she just waits and it seems like it's taking forever. And she starts to pray, God, I know you work all things together for good. This doesn't seem very good. Been in that situation? Said she was praying, God, I know you're an ever-present help in trouble. I need help. I need a miracle. And she's praying and she's panicking and she's singing with the kids and pretending. And time goes by and she's running out of gas and the phone's not going to work. And she says she sees this guy walking down the, the side of 540 in a snowmobile suit carrying a gas can. And she looks out and she thinks, what a nice man. He looks like he's trying to help people. And then as she looks closer, as he gets closer, she realizes, that's my husband. And he's walking towards her car, and she starts to weep. Now she's crying tears of joy, and her husband gets to the car, and he's crying too, because he, was, he didn't know where she was at. He was praying, God, just take me to her car, help me to get there. And so she's excited, and he's excited, and I'm thinking, he's a jerk, because he just made my job harder. <laughs> but here's the deal. She's got great comfort now at this moment. Now, they're still in a line with 500 cars. Eventually, they leave that car and walk to his car and then drive his car and then walk three miles through a golf course, I guess, and all this stuff to get to their house. But they're together. Now, back up on that story. What if she had gotten home at 12? There was no storm. And then he came home, and they would be together. They, he would be present. Do you know what his presence meant out there in the difficulty, in the tragedy, in the trial? It meant something else. It meant something more. When I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. So I told you some of my worst times when I was struggling with anxiety were in prayer. But God also met me there. And sometimes he just tell me some simple truths, like stuff that kids are learning in bridge kids right now. God loves you. He can say things like, I love you, Scott. I'd be afraid of losing everything. He'd say, they can't ever take me. I'm with you. You see, David, David's one of those guys that was struggling with distress, discouragement, Psalm 31. One of his, the, my favorite psalms of all the psalms, Psalm 63. Let me tell you what's happening before I read you any of the verses. Psalm 63, David's been betrayed by his own son. His son's trying to take his kingdom. It's been so bad, he's allowed his kingdom to get so weak that he's now got to flee out into the desert. He's fleeing from his son Absalom out into the desert. It looks like he's going to lose his kingdom. He could lose his life. And it's 11 verses. I'll read you the first few. In Psalm 63, in verse 1, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. This is key. In a dry and weary land where there's no water. Verse 2, he says this. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. See, I know you in the palace. I've seen you there in my comfort. I've been to the sanctuary where everything's controlled. Now I'm out in a dry and weary land. And there's nothing I want more than you. And God meets him. He says, because your love is better than my life, my lips will glorify you. I can praise you even in the difficulty because you meet me there. See, the problem for many of us 
we get in those discouraging times, is that we're looking for solutions. We're looking for ways to fix the circumstances. We want to alleviate the pain. We want uh, uh, something, some formula or something to fix the problem. And what we need to be seeking is him. He's there. And he wants to meet us in the valley of the shadow of death. It's the Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He takes care of all that other stuff. So instead of seeking the problem being fixed or the solutions or the applications or the formulas or the fixes, we need to be seeking him. He promises his presence. So you're discouraged. He'll meet you. He's there. And he's the solution. But that's if you know him. Because while he's omnipresent, he's everywhere all the time. He's distanced from you by your sin if you don't know him. He's not just there for everyone. These promises are to people that he knows. People he has a relationship with. And that came through his son Jesus Christ, who like that husband who came for his wife, he came for us to rescue us in our trial. Our trial was called sin. That we separated ourselves from him because everyone has sinned and fallen short of his perfect standard. But Jesus Christ came to be our rescuer, our deliverer. Not just to be there with us like a good friend, but to be a father who'd protect and guide to be the one whose presence is known, that just, it just makes things better. That he's there. But you've got to know him. He promises his presence. He provides people. But he also, for those of you who know him, he pushes us to perseverance. He pushes us to continue on. It's what he does with Paul here. He pushes him to perseverance. He tells him, don't be silent. Keep going. And he tells him why at the end of verse 10. He says, for I have many people in this city. Listen, I've got a work for you to do, Paul. This is about more than just you, Paul. This isn't just what I want to do in your life. This isn't just who I'm making you into. I'm being faithful to complete the work I'm doing in you, and that is true. I want to transform you. I want to get you to trust me more. I want you to depend on me. But it's not just about you. I've got many people in this city that I plan to save, and Paul, I want to use you in the process of doing that. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to stay. I need you to keep going. Paul stays in Corinth, if you read verse 11, for a year and a half, 18 months. So long as he stayed anywhere up to this point, that is like retirement for Paul. Okay, he goes to the towns for like three weeks at a time. He's here for eighteen months, and he stays there with these people. A big church has started in Corinth, and it's got problems, just like every church has problems. But it's alive. People are getting saved. Things are happening. People are being changed. I wonder what it was like for Paul to get this promise that I'm gonna I'm gonna transform people's lives here, especially when he looked back on it. Because a lot of times it's when you look back on stuff and you see what God's doing. And I told you he writes some letters to these Corinthians. And one of the letters in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he writes to the people. And listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Oh, words of encouragement, Paul. Do not be deceived. We've heard about that. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These are tough words. Look what he says next. And that is what some of you were. That's the key word. That's what some of you were. But then God did a work. But, contrast, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And guess what Paul got to do as he reflects on that and think, I was a part of that. God, you chose to use me because I persevered. You see, what God does is he uses those difficult moments to develop perseverance in us. James says it to us like this. Rejoice in your trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, who does that? 
Anybody? I'm on I-70 and I'm stuck. Woo! God must want to teach me something. Apparently there's some people that do it. It's people that know verse 3. Verse 3 says this, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. So when we go through this stuff, what he's doing is he's developing perseverance. The ability, he makes us stronger. So that in our faith we'll lack nothing, he eventually says in James, that we'll have everything we need to live this life of godliness that he wants, that he wants not just for our sake, for the sake of impacting other people. But you've got to persevere. She and I had some mentors tell us one time, I don't even think we were facing anything difficult. They just told us, you're going to be overwhelmed. Things are going to happen. There's going to come a time where you can't control stuff. There's too many things happening. Things aren't going the way that you want them to. All kinds of things are going to take place. And here was the, the counsel they gave us. Just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. And sometimes, you know, that next thing is very simple. There are times where I'm thinking about Southbridge. What's it, where are we going to be in five years? Who are we going to become? And then I, I get overwhelmed and I start to think about, well, I know that I'm supposed to preach this Sunday, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to study this passage. I'm going to do the next thing. I'm going to get this message ready. Times where she gets overwhelmed at home and things are happening with the kids and you just, just do the next thing. For some of you, the next thing is you need to get out of bed tomorrow. That's the next thing. Go home, get some rest, take a nap tomorrow morning, get out of bed. It's a new day. Just do the next thing. For some of you, the next thing is you need some people. You need to get into a group. Do the next thing. For some of you, God's been trying to reveal his presence. You've been missing it. You, just, you need to ask him to reveal himself to you. Show me where you're, where you're at in this valley, in this difficulty. Do the next thing. Seek him. Not seek the solution. Not seek the antidote. Seek his presence. You need to do the next thing. What's the next thing? Father God, will you please reveal yourself to us? Will you please lift the spirits of those who are feeling weak, those who are feeling burdened, those who are feeling despair, those who are feeling distressed, those who feel discouraged? God, will you be the glory and the lifter of their heads? Will you allow their faces to come before you? Will you shine your glory on each one of us? God, show us your presence. Show us your truth. Reveal to us your gospel message. Father God, I pray for those who don't know you yet. I pray if there are any here that don't know what we're talking about even. We talk about the gospel. We talk about the resurrection. We talk about your son, Jesus. And we thank you that you sent him to come and die for our sins, to live a perfect life, and then rise from the dead. If you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ, today can be the day of salvation for you. Just call upon him and ask him to be your Lord. Ask him to be your Savior. Confess your sin to him. And if you do, please check a card and let us know so we can pray for you and help you. And Father God, I pray for those that are believers today. Some might be discouraged. I pray that you'd encourage them, lift them up. I pray, God, for those that are not facing discouragement now, but that you'd remind them of these truths when the time is needed, that you'd provide people, that you'd promise them your presence again, that you'd refresh their memory of those things, and that you'd encourage them to persevere. I thank you so much for your word, that you don't leave us here blindly figuring it out on our own, but that you guide us according to your truth. Please continue to guide us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.